I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2019 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. In today's program, we get some insight into the influence precision technology had on the 2019 cropping season, and some of the impact future technologies will have on on on-farm decision-making. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy Matters and TopCon Agriculture Application Solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. The rapidly evolving field of ag tech is being driven by a confluence of factors, including automation and sensor densification of ag machinery, connection of this equipment to the internet, remote sensing via unmanned aerial vehicles, and cloud computing. 2019 created both opportunities and obstacles for adoption of new ag technology, with strip tillers facing shorter planting and harvesting timelines. This is an ongoing trend, says Dr. Scott Shearer, Ag Engineering Professor at Ohio State, which will make tools like artificial intelligence, machine automation, and robotics important pieces to maintain field efficiencies in the future. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Scott and I reflect on the 2019 growing season and dissect a few of the practical and progressive applications of machine learning technologies. Was curious from your perspective what you've seen and heard, how that 2019 season, probably starting even the end of 2018, and what we saw with planning, kind of influenced the egg technology market. And was there something that maybe was on the other side as well, where we saw technology have an impact on how farmers got in the field and what they were able to accomplish this year? I'm going to say two or three things, and you probably recognize this. A couple of things are coming together right now to really kind of shorten our planning windows. State of Ohio, and we have a climatologist who has data to substantiate this. State of Ohio, recent years, comparison to 20 years ago, we're seeing five fewer field days in the spring and five fewer harvest days in the fall. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we're seeing kind of a compressed amount of time or window for actual planting operations and harvest operations. This year, Ohio was horrendous in terms of the rainfall in the springtime, but I make that statement because the other thing that's occurring that's kind of simultaneously occurring is we're seeing a lot of farmers begin that shift to planting their soybeans first and their corn second, okay? Been seeing a lot of that, obviously, in the I states, especially Illinois, but we're starting to see farmers pick up on it here in Ohio, too. And so kind of a combination of a number of factors, but I think it really kind of elevates the importance of high-speed planting. So I don't know how many farmers have quite reached that level yet where they're feeling that pressure, but at least high-speed planting gives them one of those opportunities to try to hit those windows a little bit better for optimizing yield. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. And that would seem pretty logical based on what you're seeing, particularly in your area and in the region. The other thing, and you know, Ohio, we've had problems with, I'm going to say, off-site nutrient movement into Grand Lake St. Mary's and Western Lake Erie Basin, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're starting to see potentially a little bit more interest in drip till with band or deep banded placement of nutrients. Obviously, one of the problems is being able to cover acres in a timely fashion. We see a lot of uh, nutrient placement technologies, and the point that I guess I'd like to make is in the state of Ohio, we have a program called H2 Ohio that's going to provide cost share to farmers to begin doing things differently. Some of this technology is coming along at about the same time, if you will, that farmers are going to have access to some additional resources to do things a little bit differently. And so I look at any of the uh, fertilizer placement technologies as kind of being a fair game in some respects in terms of interest on the part of Ohio farmers. There's going to be some cost share money that will help defray the cost, but we're also, farmers are kind of in the crosshairs in the state of Ohio because of some of the water quality issues and because of the governor's focus on trying to solve the problem. There's just kind of a confluence of factors that could elevate the importance of a number of the nutrient placement technologies. So did we see any benefit this year with being able to utilize some of those? I mean, I know just talking with different precision dealers, there was still a very much an emphasis on really making sure the technology on the planters was maximized to its full potential, particularly this year when there was such a tight window to get crops planted. Yeah, and you know, we still have farmers using older technology, and I appreciate and I understand that. I mean, it kind of boils down to how many acres you run a row unit over in a season as to what you can afford to spend on technology. Personally, I think if you're going to be high-speed planning, you better have downforce control. I don't think those are mutually exclusive, okay? And what we're seeing is requirements for a little greater downforce on high-speed planting, and so there's going to be some combination of technologies that become increasingly important. Emergence, I think, is still one of those things that everybody's concerned about in terms of that plant-to-plant uniformity. It's probably the best way to characterize it. Some people have bought into the two- or three-day-late emergers or are causing problems or robbing the adjacent plants of nutrients and water, and there's probably something to that, but my concern would be late emergers that occur a little bit later, too, and we know they're problematic. I think one of the other areas that need to kind of be looking at in terms of technology is how we're going to manage Roundup-resistant weeds or weed escapes. And if there's some technologies out there where we can manage them where they're still relatively modest in a few percent of the area, I think that's going to serve farmers well. I'm thinking about whether or not we get to the point where we can begin spraying with unmanned aerial systems. And what I'm talking about is really spot spraying with those systems. Mm-hmm. So. I think there's a lot of farmers that would like that option if we're available. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast series possible. I also wanted to remind you about our series featured monthly on our podcast, Tech Tips with Dr. Ray Acevedo. For the former assistant professor of precision agriculture at Kansas State University and consultant for Topcon Agriculture, shares insights and advice on some of the latest precision tools and how to best implement them on your operation. You can listen to past technology tips and also find accompanying articles at striptillfarmer.com. 
Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Scott Shearer, who discusses some of the potential changes coming to farms in the future. With some of the advances that have been made, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about Blue River technology and obviously what they're working on and other companies that are developing systems in that area. How ready is the market for that type of technology? And like you said, I mean, Roundup resistance is a legitimate concern and something that farmers are dealing with. So do kind of external issues or things within the landscape of what farmers deal with kind of accelerate the need or the adoption potential for those types of technologies? Yeah, what I always like, let's do the simple things that work that we know are going to add value. And I like where Blue River's headed. There's something there because... John Deere invested heavily. There's a lot of other areas where artificial intelligence is going to creep into crop production. And I'm going to say creep in, it's not going to wholesale replace everything. I'm still very wed to the fact that we still need humans in the loop. Okay, so in other words, the technology has not matured to the point where you can just let it take over. On the other hand, the one way that the technology is going to learn is when we catch those errors and the humans are able to correct them, that the systems learn from themselves and keep getting better and better and better. I want to be careful because we have some IP to protect at Ohio State, but one of the things, and hopefully I can explain this to you in a manner that makes sense to you. When we look at artificial intelligence, and I'm going to say for, let's say, identifying crop stress, why would we worry about training a classifier to identify a crop stress in a corn crop if we're out treating a soybean crop. So what I'm trying to get people to think about is when we begin limiting the scope of what we can expect in terms of crop stresses, in terms of production problems, when we limit the scope of that, our artificial intelligence does a much better job. Now, if we're assuming that we're going to send a drone out there or a sprayer or whatever it is, and it's going to take care of every possible problem in every possible field and every possible crop, I think people are getting a, a little overzealous about where the technology is going to go. In other words, I believe in artificial intelligence, and it's going to do some wonderful things, but we're not going to have this gigantic universal system that just does everything. And so the deployment of artificial intelligence is going to be very crop-specific, machine-specific, and I'm going to even say to the point of stage of crop growth specific. And that's where I think as we begin to learn how to manage this intelligence, that's where I think it's going to get interesting. And that's where some of the creativity is left. You know, right now, rapid development of neural network classifiers, all the major cloud-based service providers, they're in this heavy. And so what we have to do from agriculture is learn how to if you will, adapt some of the existing neural network classifiers to agricultural applications. In other words, why should we create a whole new class of neural network classifiers when we simply need to take the ones that exist and migrate them to agriculture? There's some fantastic things being done right now in terms of training. We've been using ResNet 50 a lot. It's open source. You can download it. Anybody can use it. Now, I say anybody people who have that talent for implementing neural network classifiers. And the things that we've been doing at Ohio State is we strip out the output layers of nodes, and then we retrain it to specific instances. And we're getting very good results doing that, excellent results. I got a PhD student, and man, he's blown away by what the capabilities are. As I tell people, when we look at images of crop stresses, I'm going to use nitrogen deficiency in a corn crop. We look at the leaves especially lower leaves in the plant, we see that yellow midrib and we go, oh, nitrogen deficiency. Well, what we're looking for is we're looking at the midrib of that leaf 
and we're looking for the chlorotic state of the plant. So a couple image features. Now, if it was the margins of the leaf on the lower leaves, ah, it's probably phosphorus deficiency. But again, these are what I call artifacts or image features that become important to the classification. To give you a feel, uh, ResNet 50 and some of these neural network classifier, they're using tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of image features. And I don't think people can even begin to comprehend some of the things that are occurring. Chris, my PhD student, got to doing a lot of image classification of insect feeding damage. And he had some images that got misclassified. It was some kind of northern corn leaf blight or something like that. Well, he got to looking at the images that were misclassified as insect feeding damage, and he saw round beetles in the images. And so the classifier picked up on the insects that was able to detect the image and said, it's associated with insect feeding damage, which is a perfectly rational thing when you're training. But again, if you have insects present in other images, you might get misclassifications. So those are the sorts of things that we're going to have to guard against as we go through this process of deploying artificial intelligence. It's a black box. It's generating a lot of great results, but it's also operating on a level that it's difficult for humans to comprehend. Those are good points, like you said, particularly one of the things you mentioned, probably not necessarily having to reinvent the wheel and that there's a lot that can be learned for some of the technology that's already been developed. I'm looking at some of these companies as they position themselves. One of the companies I think everybody needs to be paying attention to is Swarm Farm out of Australia. My rationale, they have autonomous sprayers, and if you've been paying attention to them, the company's business model is, I think they built 20 of them this year. I was there in February. They built 20 of them this year, didn't sell any. They don't plan to sell any. They're going to lease the machines. So I understand they send a technician out to set up the farm. The technician sets up the robotic sprayer. And then the technician is pretty much on call if anything goes wrong with the technology to come out and fix it. The question that I think you need to begin asking the farmers that are using those systems is what the cost of spray application is. I suspect it's far less than custom application rates are in the U.S. right now. I've been telling the manufacturers, sprayer manufacturers, you know, the big three, I said, what I'd be paying attention to is what companies like Swarm Farm do to the high-clearance sprayer market. And I said, when that market starts to fall off and we start seeing people buying these small autonomous machines, that's when we see kind of a seed change in agriculture. In other words, seeding follows and harvest and everything else. Mm-hmm. I think the key of spray application, and my point is, farmers will tolerate some errors with spray application because they really can't see it. One of the things they won't tolerate are errors with seeding operations or harvest operations because the results are very visible. Yeah, that's a good point. So anyways, look for spray application to be automated first. The other thing I'm going to say is it takes a human out of the loop. For some of the specialty crop growers, it's an issue about human safety. Take them out of the environment where you have the spray materials. That makes sense. The, the other thing is there's a lot of companies that can automate things. <laughs> the thing that nobody's paying attention to and the deal breaker in all this is you got to tend that equipment in the field. If nobody's there to refill the sprayer tank or the seed hopper or whatever the case is, the machine stops. So what I keep saying is, who's going to provide the logistics to keep that equipment in the field? And nobody's talking about that. And I'd say that's 50% of the problem that has to be resolved before we see what we would consider to be autonomous equipment mainstream on farms in North America.
That's a good point. Obviously, you're right. That is kind of the other side of the coin there is you can have this equipment out there running, depending on the size, but you're right. There's still got to be some oversight and maintenance, in-field maintenance that takes place. The other thing is, and I kind of liken this to the dairy industry, what would happen if you told a dairy farmer that I can't get there to service your robot for two days? Pretty uncomfortable conversation. (laughs) That's right. My guess is that farmer's probably not going to be your customer much longer. So what's going to happen when we have all this autonomous equipment that's in the field and something happens to it, let's say it's 3 o'clock in the morning and a storm front's coming? My point in all this is I think the dealerships are necessarily going to change in some form or fashion. I like using Swarm Farm as an example, but quite literally, you can warehouse all the parts to that autonomous sprayer in the bed of a pickup truck. And what I begin thinking of is, Maybe the dealership becomes a truck that gets dispatched based on problems noted as these pieces of equipment are in the field. I think it's going to be incumbent upon dealerships to move to a 24-7 mindset during certain times of the year. And again, I think there's going to be greater demand on parts availability for this equipment as well. I see the whole machinery industry moving more towards a service sector than anything else. I think the mindset still for a lot of these dealerships is we sell iron. (laughs) Well, I think in the the future they're going to be selling technology and selling services. That's something I've certainly heard mentioned by yourself and other folks, even within dealerships. I think there's a realization of, hey, there's a shift, and looking to take steps and moving that direction is where some understand that they have to be. But you're right. I mean, I've heard the parts, the service side of things being more critical when we do start to see that become that transition into more of the automation becoming more commonplace. So you're right. Some dealers probably are looking at changing the way that they're structured and what their priorities are. Well, and by the way, it's not just the dealers are going to have to change. Farmers are going to have to change. And my point that I want to make here with increasing levels of sophistication and technology is going to come value to producers. But we're also going to move from a point in time when many producers controlled all facets of their operation to the point where they're going to have to pick a few they're really good at and buy services for the rest. It's going to be the service side of things changing a bit, but it's also going to be farmers understanding that, hey, I'm a lot better off relying on some other people to do some of these things. They can do them more cost-effectively than I can, and the uptime of my equipment is going to be much better. Well, thank you, Scott, for sharing your vision for when and how the egg tech industry will evolve in the short and long term. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Strip-Till, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Strip-Till Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2019 podcast series. For Dr. Shearer, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here with Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <music>